we continue in our study of the parables and we come to what is considered one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult, of the parables, which, all things being equal, I probably would not have tackled because I don't plan to look at all the parables of Jesus. But I do want to look at the parable that is at the end of chapter 16. That is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The only parable, by the way, in which a character is named, uh, that the beggar is named Lazarus. Well, I think in order to understand the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, we have to look at the parable that comes before it. It provides context for it. It sets the stage. And it gives us, I think, an appropriate context for understanding uh, what the Lord willing we will look at next week. So if you would follow along as I read, beginning in verse number 1, here in Luke chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their, home, their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain yourselves or to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, on the surface, the parable seems clear enough. There is a man who is a manager. Uh, he has been in charge of uh, this individual. He's referred to as the master. He's been put in charge of his property. And he has been accused of not doing a good job, of wasting the manager's possessions. Just a side note. In all likelihood, what Jesus has in mind is not a slave, but this is a man who has been hired to take care, to oversee this man's possessions. If he had been a slave, he wouldn't simply be dismissed, but in fact would probably be physically punished and given unpleasant work to do instead. In Jewish laws with regard to managers or agents, as they were known, there were three basic principles. The first is that the man's agent was the same as the person. That is, whatever the agent did on my behalf, if he's my agent, his word is my word. He is acting on my behalf. I think in modern terms, he has power of attorney. Whatever he, he says, it is as though I am speaking. But secondly, you cannot hire someone or you cannot get an agent to do something that is wrong. 
Okay, you, I cannot be an agent for someone in order to do something that is illegal. That would be against the law. And then thirdly, there is a legal presumption that the agent does what he is supposed to do. Okay. In this case, the agent did not. But he is acting in the capacity of the master, and that is important. Uh, what the agent does is as though the master has done it himself. So, here's a man, the master comes to him and says, listen, what's this I've heard? You're not doing a good job. You're running my business into the ground. You're wasting my possessions. I want you to give an account. We're going to go over the books, and you're going to give an account of what you have done with my possessions. So there's a time between that first encounter and an encounter that is going to come in which they will open the books. In the meantime, the manager is thinking, what am I going to do? I'm about to get fired. And what am I going to do for a job? I, I'm not strong enough to dig ditches and I don't want to beg. I'm ashamed to beg. What should I do? And so he comes up with a plan, with a strategy. He says, I know what I'll do. When I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. And the strategy is that he will cancel a part of the debt that people owe his master, or the person he works for, so that he will be grateful and will say, hey, now that you've lost your job, either I'll give you a job or you can stay with us until you get back on your feet. So, the manager calls in each debtor. The first one owes 800 gallons of olive oil. I find it interesting... This is not an exact figure, because if you look at the more recent version of the NIV, it says 900 gallons. Then others will say 875. We're not exactly sure, but it was a large amount, okay, between 800 and 900 gallons of olive oil. I think the ESV has 875. This is the yield of about 150 olive trees. It is the equivalent of three years' wages for an average worker. And so the man comes in and says, what do you owe? 800. He says, cut it in half. You only owe 400. And remember, because the agent, when he speaks, it is as though the person he, who hired him is speaking. That, that cannot be changed. He has spoken on behalf of the master. So now the bill is, he only owes half of what he did. The second man owes a thousand bushels of wheat. And again, uh, this is not an exact figure. But it is enough to feed 150 people for a year. It's the produce of 100 acres, the equivalent of seven and a half years of work for the average worker. This debt is not cut in half, it is cut by 20%. In each case, though, what is cut out is basically close to the equivalent of two years of labor. Now, just a side note, this parable deals with large business dealings. This is not the average person who goes down to the market. This is not a peasant. Um, this is not someone with an average income. We're talking about people who have money. I mean, 800 gallons of olive oil is quite a bit. So this, in many ways, as Jesus is speaking, is far beyond the reach of most of his listeners. Okay. He's talking about a lot of money being involved. Now, the thinking behind this is, as I've mentioned, the idea of reciprocity. The expectation that, in fact, since I've done you a favor, you will in turn do me a favor. We saw this, by the way, in Luke chapter 14, in which Jesus is talking about hospitality. He said, Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. 
If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. That's the idea. I've done you a favor. You will do me a favor in return. And if I have cut your bill in half, that's a pretty big favor. Um, Then perhaps you will hire me or give me a job or let me stay with you at least for a while. When the master finds out what this, this manager has done, he does something quite unexpected. He commends the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. This is in the first part of verse number eight. And if we think this is unexpected, what Jesus says is even more so. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. How are we to understand this, the actions of the, the, of the manager? I think this is crucial to understanding this particular parable. And this is where it seems various commentators have gone astray. You may remember that I said when you study the parables, they tend to be very thin. Jesus is trying to get a point across. And oftentimes, if we try to fill in the gaps, that's where we'll get into trouble. So, for example, one uh, commentator states that this master had been charging a very high rate of interest. And so what this servant does, or this manager does, is he gets rid of this illegal, if you wish, this immoral interest. And so he says to the person here, you really only owe half. The rest was all interest. Um, well, we're not told that. Okay, that's that's reading something into it. Another argues that the manager realized that the master was merciful because he didn't fire him on the spot. You know, he gave him a chance like we're going to go through the books. And so since he saw the master was merciful, he thought he would be merciful as well. Um, Again, both of these, I think, are adding to the story and they fail to take into account something else. And that is that Jesus refers to the manager as being dishonest. In verse number eight, the master commended the dishonest manager. One writer, I think, correctly puts it, without any other information from the text, the reader has to accept that the manager acted dishonestly. That is the basic premise of this. He is the one who acted dishonestly, not the master. The master wasn't charging exorbitant interest. We're not told that. Uh, The man didn't say, oh, I'll be merciful because my master is merciful. The man was, in fact, dishonest. And, I mean, if, in fact, he was wasting the master's possessions, it's not a real stretch to think that maybe he did that because of his dishonesty. So we have a manager of an estate who cheats his master in order to ingratiate himself with his clients. And everyone, the master, the narrator, the listeners would consider him to be unrighteous. So how are we to understand what the master says and what Jesus says? It would seem to some, and some have argued, that Jesus is praising the man's dishonesty. But consider what the master does or what he views. He doesn't praise his dishonesty, but rather it is his resourcefulness, that he is very shrewd. He has done something quite shrewd, and that is 
The olive oil is not his. What's owed is not owed to him. It's owed to the master. But he can act on behalf of the master. And so there's nothing the master can do. Cut that bill in half. And won't you owe me something when I lose my job? Jesus does not tell us that the man, the master kept him on. Or that the, ma- the manager in any way was rewarded. If we had to guess, and again, this is dangerous because the parable is very narrow and very thin. But if we had to guess, the man did get fired. Okay, The master did, in fact, go through and hire this man. And perhaps he did find a home among the former debtors. Now, in understanding this parable, which is difficult, a crucial question is, where does the parable end? Now, we have verses. They're numbered. And so you know, we tend to think in terms of the numbers. Um, many people think that it ends in verse number eight, the first part of verse number eight. And if that's true, I think our understanding will be quite different. If it includes verse number nine, then I think we go in a different direction altogether with verses 10 through 13 sort of being commentary um, and really try to explain what Jesus is saying. Otherwise, we see verses 10 through 13 as trying to cover up a rather embarrassing parable. Um, I mean, why would Jesus seem to favor or, or say something good about someone who was so patently dishonest? I think that the parable runs through verse 8, the first part. And then the second part of verse 8 and verse 9 is Jesus explaining the parable to us. Verses 10 through 13 are included as commentary and they provide the foundation for what we will see the Lord willing next week, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Another question we need to ask ourselves is, who is the focus of this parable? Is it the master or the manager? For some, it is the master that he is the focus of the parable, particularly the fact that he is rich. And for them, if you're rich, then you must be an evil guy in in scripture. And therefore, he is, in fact, some have gone so far as to say he was rich because he had cheated other people. And this man had worked for him all these years. And now he realizes, oh, I'm working for someone who's who's dishonest. And therefore, I will give these people financial relief from my dishonest uh, master. Um, No, that's simply not the case. Um, I think we need to recognize that in Scripture and in the Gospels, being rich is not condemned as such. In chapter 8, we read of the women... We read of the women who supported Jesus. In uh, in chapter 14, we read of the man who gave a banquet. He's in the parable. In chapter 19, Zacchaeus, who is specifically called rich... To be rich is not a sin. And so the master is not the focal point of this parable. Oh, look at this terrible man. He's rich because he's cheated other people. It is the manager who is, in fact, dishonest. So, why does the master, why does Jesus commend this man, praise him for what is a dishonest act? Now, we have one of two options here, at least. The first is to say that he is praised for doing something that is just and effective. Or he does something that is unjust, but it is still effective. I think it's clear that it's a second. That what he does is not right. 
it is not his, I mean, he is the agent, he is the manager, but one would say, what gives you the right to cancel someone's debt, to cut it in half or by 20%? You're only doing it because of self-interest. You're hoping that once you get fired, you'll have another job to go to. Um, So what he does is what has been called calculated fraud. He is, in fact, doing something that is quite wrong. There is nothing just about his actions. Not only has he wasted the master's possessions, that's why he's going to get fired, but then when the master is owed all of this, the master will lose money from this as well. He's been defrauded twice by this man who is dishonest. In the real world, such a person would probably have been uh, indicted and sent to prison. But this is a parable, and Jesus is trying to make a point. And, And so what is the point? How can you tell a story about someone who is basically criminal, and it means something good? We need to ask ourselves, what is the point of verse 8, the second part, and verse number 9? And let me read it to you again. For the people of this world, or this age, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I think we would agree that the first part in verse 8 is easier than the part in verse number 9. In fact, I would say that verse number 9 makes no sense whatsoever if it is not connected to this parable. If, in fact, someone just gave you verse number 9 and said, this is what Jesus said, and you knew no context at all, this would not make any sense. Verse number 8 in the second part shows the significance of the parable. And here the ESV, I think, is helpful. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In saying this, Jesus is using a biblical framework. And he's classifying two kinds of people in the world. Those who are children of this age or this world and those who are children of light. When Jesus refers to people as children of something or someone, he is saying, number one, they belong to it. And secondly, they have the characteristics of that thing of which they are a child. So you may remember in John chapter 8, Jesus tells his listeners, they say, we are the children of Abraham. And he says, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. So it isn't merely simply physical descent by blood, you are the children of Abraham. But you should do the things that your father did. He goes on to say, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. You are like your father. You are children of Abraham or children of Satan. And here Jesus speaks of two kinds of children, children of this world or this age and children of light. We should consider that these are in fact opposites. And therefore, we could speak of, if you have children of light, you have children of darkness. And if you have children of this world or this age, then you have the children of the age to come. The world to come. Jesus makes this assertion in talking about these two kinds of children. That the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their generation than are the children of light. Simply put, the children of this age 
And I would say here, generally speaking, Jesus isn't saying that every person of this age is more shrewd than any Christian of, of this time. But that the children of this age show more resolve for this world and temporal things than do children of light for eternal things. It is as though Jesus could almost wish that the people of God, the children of light, were as daring as this dishonest manager, as cunning, as committed, as brave, as resolute as he was. He comes up with a strategy because I'm losing my job. I'm going to be out of here. Where will I go? In the same way, we are the children of light. Our time here is temporary. When we leave here, where will we go? Are we thinking in those terms at all? I think when Jesus said this, it probably was as difficult for his listeners as it is for us today. This is not what they are expecting to hear. This is the reversal that comes so often in Jesus' parables, where we think it's going in one direction and it turns around and goes in another. In this parable, the manager will have to give an account. The books will be opened, and therefore he is facing judgment in the temporal realm. So too, in the age to come, we shall have to give an account. The books will be open, and God will judge us for what we have done or not done. How did the manager seek to secure his future? By making friends of his master's debtors. In the same way, how are we to hope to escape God's judgment? Well, we are to make friends as well. But what kind of friends? And how are we to make these friends? Well, if you thought the passage was difficult up to this point, I think it just gets more so. Look, If you look at verse number 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Um, the ESV, I think, makes it even more difficult. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What is Jesus saying? Well, the three questions that need to be answered. What is the meaning of make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth? The King James has the mammon of unrighteousness. Secondly, what does it mean when it is gone or when it fails? And thirdly, that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Let me suggest to you some things to think about. First of all, unrighteous wealth. Does this mean money that is obtained by unrighteous means? I don't think so. And certainly the rest, all of scripture speaks against this. We are not to covet. We are not to steal. We're not to defraud. So this cannot be what Jesus means. Can it be money that belongs to this world? The world, the sphere of unrighteousness. I think that's more likely. Or thirdly, can it be money that tends toward unrighteousness? That tends to corrupt? I lean toward the second and the third. Um, in verse number 11, we read of true riches, which means that there's a contrast between the riches or the wealth of this world and the true riches of the age to come. So unrighteous wealth and true riches. Okay. The second question is, when it is gone, when it fails, what does this mean? Again, I think we have three options. First of all, when your money is gone, you're bankrupt. I don't think that's likely. When your life is done more likely. Thirdly, when this age is finished, the age is gone. 
Again, I lean toward the second and the third, which in reality make little practical difference. When I'm gone, I am gone from this age. In two other parables, the parable of the rich fool, which we studied, and the rich man and Lazarus, which we will look at next Sunday, the Lord willing, their deaths are very prominent uh, in the parable. And I think that should be kept in mind, that... uh, there comes a time when your life here ends. And I think in part this is what Jesus is speaking of, that when it fails, when it is gone, when you are gone and you no longer are here, then the third thing is they may receive you into the inter- eternal dwellings. This points back to the, the dishonest manager. When I get fired, maybe these guys will let me come and live with them. Um, It is interesting to me that the eternal dwelling here is literally eternal tents, Um, which some take as ironic. For those of you who like to go camping, um, you take tents, but I don't think you plan to live in tents eternally. Um, And so some people see a certain irony here. But in fact, in Psalm 61, the psalmist writes, I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. I think what is being said in verse number nine is this. Put yourself in a good position through your use of money. Which so easily leads you astray. So that when the age is over, God will receive you into his eternal dwelling. We need to make a right use of that which so easily corrupts. And leads us astray so that when our life is finished or when this age is over, God will welcome us into his presence. And then we come to verses 10 through 13, which are important and not, as I said, some people see as a way to try to cover up this difficult and embarrassing parable. It is intended as a commentary on the use of wealth, and it leads to the parable we will look at next Sunday. Look, if you would, at verses 10 through 13. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I hesitate to use the word, but stewardship is what Jesus is talking about. And why do I hesitate? Well, because traditionally, whenever people say stewardship in church, they mean give your money. And we're going to have a stewardship campaign. That is, we need to raise funds for church. Um, or for some Christian ministry. Um, I don't know if Dan and Lonnie will remember this, but the first Sunday that I met them many years ago, uh, they had a guest speaker and he preached on this passage. And his point was, you need to give to missions. Um, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Okay. I take stewardship to encompass all of life. It has to do with much more than money. And though mammon or money is mentioned here and unrighteous wealth, 
again, we talked last week that we as modern people tend to separate things. And so when we talk about money, we see it as something completely separate from the rest of our life. Perhaps because we live in the modern age, in a monetized economy, we see ourselves supremely as consumers. It seems that everything has been commercialized. It isn't surprising that when we read a parable like this, we can't seem to get out of the rut of thinking only of money. Um, And sadly enough, we can't stop thinking about money for church. That in many ways the church has almost become commercialized and the people in the pews are consumers and therefore they need to sort of cough up the money uh, for the commercial enterprise. And so when people read this passage, oftentimes it is used to elicit, uh, to force money out of people's wallets or purses. I don't think that this is what Jesus is saying at all. What we find is this. Our time here on earth, this age, is a time of testing. It reveals, it uncovers whether or not we are trustworthy for greater things, the age to come. Simply put, if we can be trusted, if we can't be trusted in this age, how or why should we be trusted in the age to come? If we haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, who would give us property of our own? And again, we find three contrasts here, very little with much, worldly wealth with true riches, and trustworthiness with dishonesty. And in this contrast, we should consider that faithfulness is not an accident. We don't accidentally happen to be faithful. It comes from a person who is faithful in small things, very little things, and it translates to them being faithful even in big things. When we weave these three contrasts together, as Jesus does in these verses, Jesus makes the point clear that it is in terms of this life and the life that is yet to come, this age and the age that is to come. Well, what about verse number 12? Verse number 12 seems, the others may not be so difficult, but if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? David said in a prayer, In Psalm 61, everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Indeed, everything we have, I put have in quotation marks, everything we possess or think that we do comes from God. It belongs to God. In a culture that focuses on consumption, possessing becomes all important. And we forget that what we have actually belongs to someone else. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, therefore, we must use all these things upon earth in no other way than as a guest who travels through the land and comes to a hotel where he must lodge overnight. He takes only food and lodging from the host. And he says not that the property of the host belongs to him. Just so we should just so should we also treat our temporal possessions as if they were not ours and enjoy them or enjoy only so much of them as we need to nourish the body and then help our neighbors with the balance. Thus, the life of the Christian is only a lodging for a night since we have no continuing city, but must journey on to heaven where the father is. In other words, if you go to someone, if you go to a bed and breakfast, and you wake up in the morning, you don't say this is mine. I own this. No. 
It is a place where you have found lodging for the night and food in the morning. In the same way, we should consider that what we have has been given to us by God. In the parable that follows, the parable of the rich man, there is a rich man, no sin there, who lives a luxurious life, not necessarily sinful. But he has a disabled man outside his house at the gate who needs food and medical attention and for whom he does nothing. That is the problem. What the rich man had was not for himself alone, but was to be shared with those God brought across his path. And he failed to do this. In the series on vocation and ambition, we talked about the common good. We saw that a vocation or calling is a certain kind of life ordained and imposed on man by God for the common good. Well, in the latest Mars Hill Audio Journal, in one of uh, the segments, they talk quite a bit about this. That in our economy today, in the United States, here in 2013, and it's been this way for some time, it relies, even though it relies on cooperation and teamwork, we tend to relate to each other as independent and autonomous individuals. And somehow we come to believe that we owe uh, or we expect nothing more beyond that to which we have voluntarily committed ourselves. So that if, in fact, uh, I pay for something, um, I don't necessarily need to say thank you because I've paid for it and they're getting paid for their job. And that's it. I don't I don't owe them any more than that. That is the way that our economy has been set up. Uh, Friedrich von Hayek, uh, a liberal economist, early part of the 20th century, said that individual freedom cannot be reconciled with the supremacy of one single purpose to which the whole of society must be entirely and permanently subordinated. In other words, for von Hayek, common good? No way. If you have a common good that everyone is to buy into, then individual freedom is lost. What about loving your neighbor as yourself? Is that not a part of the common good? See, we live in a world in which everything is about maximizing self-interest. And human relations, for the most part, are seen in terms of struggle and competition. In many ways, the dishonest manager in this parable is more modern, I think, than I'm comfortable with. Because he's thinking about himself and himself only. I'm going to get fired How can I make sure that I have a job when I leave this place? Okay, I'll defraud my manager or my master even further so that these people will take me into their houses when I've lost my job. The idea of thinking of others or thinking of the common good seems to have left us as a generation. We see this in the dishonest manager. In fact, some have argued that if you try to speak of a common good, that this is actually destructive of economy, that the economy will slow down. And in fact, it becomes a form of slavery or servitude. The one thing, if you know your history at all about us as Americans, that tends to unite us is conflict, is a war. Then we talk about common cause. Let's do this. But when it comes to the economy, it's dog-eat-dog. Every person's out for themselves. We are to be the children of light. 
So what does this mean for us? Well, we need to recognize that everything we have been given is gift. It is a gift from God. We need to recognize that we have been given a calling. That we are to serve others. This is stewardship, not simply giving money, but serving. That one day we will give an account. This is what this parable is trying to tell us. That we need to be as shrewd and as strategic in many ways in how we live our lives. This is what God has given me. Okay, this is, These are my abilities. These are my gifts. Uh, this is my family. This is where I live. This is my health. What is it that I should do for the kingdom of God, for common good? So that one day when I stand before God and give an account, by God's grace, I will be able to give an account and say, I have done well with what you have given me. And he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. The one thing that I'm concerned about in in looking through this parable, because in fact one of the commentators put it this way, he said that nothing happens without self-interest. And there he wasn't talking about money. He was talking about the Christian life. I find that disturbing. Because it is as though he's saying each one of us needs to go home today after the service. And we need each of us privately, personally, individually to come up with a strategy where we can maximize our self-interest for the kingdom of God. So that when we get to heaven, God will say, you did a good job. I think what we should be thinking of is us as a congregation, not simply of ourselves as individuals. We need to be thinking about the common good. Not simply, you know, when, when I get to heaven, I want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But living when and where we do, there's a part of me that wants, that I want God to say, well, you did a better job than somebody else in the congregation. Well done, better done than so-and-so. That is to belong to this age in which relationships are seen only in terms of struggle and competition. We as God's people are in this together. And we are to help each other and support each other. And I think this is in part where the stewardship comes in here in terms of, if you wish, material things, that we are to help one another. We are to help those who are in need. And not simply say, um, well, I'll give money to a particular charity, for example. Nothing wrong with that. But if we see someone within the congregation, we are part of a body together, we need to help each other. Nothing happens without self-interest, really. That, doesn't, that sounds very much like the age in which we live. But it doesn't sound like what it means to be a child of God. Self-interest, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I'm part of a congregation. I'm to work for the common good. Something to think about. One last thing before I close. If you've been listening to this series, I don't know if it's occurred to you, you may remember that I've said that one of the principles is that the parables are theocentric. In this parable, what does it tell us about God? How can this parable be a theocentric parable?
parable that sort of praises dishonesty, or seemingly so, um, I would suggest two things. First of all, if we are children of light, then God is our Father. That is not to be discounted at all. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, one day we will give an account. And most commentators who write on this parable agree that this is what is called an eschatological parable. It's a parable about the end times, that one day we will all stand before God. And Jesus is saying to his listeners, hey, you know, in modern terms, you're all thinking about the 401k, but are you thinking about heaven? Are you thinking about the presence of God, the eternal dwellings? You spend more time trying to manipulate things to strategize here when in fact you should be thinking as God's people, as children of light, what is it that God has called us to do? How can we be good stewards here that one day God will say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. Let's pray together. Father, on some level, we thank you that your word is not always easily understood. That in fact it requires study and prayer, thought, meditation. That it isn't all milk. There is in fact meat sometimes. Difficult to chew on and sometimes difficult to digest. I thank you for this parable, for all its difficulties. And may we come to see what Jesus is saying. That you have put us here. We are your agents, if you wish. You have commissioned us. You have given us gifts, callings, jobs, families, skills. You put us where we live. You've given us neighbors. And we are, in fact, to act shrewdly. We are to think about what does it mean to be a child of the light in this world at this time? I think if we would be honest, we have spent more time thinking about our financial situation than perhaps our spiritual situation. In some ways, we've left it all up to you that you're going to get us to heaven. Have no sense of responsibility. By your spirit, may we come to think on these things, meditate on them, and put them into practice. As we leave this place today, we remember Jen and Aaron and ask that you would open doors for them. Pray for Stephen as he plays this afternoon. He would use, give him the ability to use the skills that you have given him to bring glory to your name. And we thank you for Marcus's birthday, for Mike and Jesse's anniversary. How good you are to us. Now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? We'll sing the doxology together.